you're listening to This Nazarene Life, stories of young Nazarene clergy and their role models. This episode is sponsored by the Creation Care Summit, a grassroots gathering of Nazarenes. You can join us in Flint, Michigan this October as we dream about what a creation care movement in the Church of the Nazarene could look like. There's more details over at creationcaresummit.eventbrite.com. Today on the podcast, we're hearing from Reverend Jason Adkins, director of the Trevecca Urban Farm at Trevecca Nazarene University. Thanks for all you do for young clergy, and thanks for tuning in. Hey, welcome back to the podcast. I'm Britt Bullerjack, and I'm here with my guest, Reverend Jason Atkins. Jason is the director of the Trevecca Urban Farm and a professor in the social justice department there on campus. Welcome to the show. Thank you. So the first question I ask everybody is, how did you end up in the Church of the Nazarene? I remember my first church experience being in a Nazarene church in um, Nicholasville, Kentucky. And um, that was the first time I remember being in church. My Mm -hmm. family went to a very conservative high school and college in Eastern Kentucky um, called uh, Kentucky Mountain Bible College. Mm -hmm. And it was kind of makes Nazarenes look uh, really wild and liberal. (laughs) And so we, we ended up going to a church associated with that college called the church of the Bible covenant. Mm. And it was um, a very conservative um, church. um, And we ended up coming back to Nashville where we began attending uh, a church here in Nashville. That was a Nazarene church where Mm. my mom had grown up and been married. And so, um, that is, I've been in the Church of the Nazarene since then, uh, since I was 13, mm-hmm. and as well as the early parts of my life. So tell me about how you experienced a, a kind of call to ministry. There's a really beautiful part of my favorite book, Jaber Crow by Wendell Berry, mm-hmm. where one of the characters, the main character, Jaber Crow, um, has been going to Bible college on the assumption that Um, He's been called to ministry, and then he realizes he has a lot of questions about the faith, about the Bible that make it difficult for him to go into ministry, and he talks to one of his professors about it, and his professor tells him, well, he doesn't tell him much. He just asks him questions, and and Jaber is really... um, really conflicted. And he says, how can I, how can I be a preacher if I have all these questions? Hmm. And um, his professor says, yes, how can you? And Javer says, well, I don't think I can. And then his professor says, no, I don't think you can. And Hmm. Javer says, but I thought I was called. And his professor says, maybe you were called, but it wasn't to what you thought. And so Jaber goes on to be a barber instead of uh, a preacher. But you see that his vocation is just as much a calling and a part of a body of people 
in God's creation that are um, struggling to be human, struggling to tell their stories. And you see that Jaber is sort of um, a pastor after all of his own sort. Mm. Um, I felt a very strong connection with God from a young age and knew that my life was going to be given over to God in, in the kind of entire way that Nazarenes teach about. Mm. Um, I was never clear that I was going to be a pastor or a missionary, but all most of my family was that. I had an aunt in Lesotho, Africa. I had another aunt and uncle in um, Los Angeles, um, serving the homeless population in Skid Row. And I had another aunt and uncle who were, uh, were pastors. Um, and so my call to ministry um, really began with my call to follow Jesus, mm. but was clarified in Los Angeles when I was 22. Um, my friend and I had gotten in a 71 VW camper van and uh, headed for Alaska from Treveca, wow. uh, where we just graduated. <laughs> so we went the back roads to the little towns and all the state and national parks between here and there, and back down the West Coast to Los Angeles over three months. And we were really just wanting to find God in a new way and see the beautiful country and take the kinds of trips that we'd read about with Jack Kerouac and Ken Kesey. Um, and we did and we ended up in la i had applied and received a scholarship to go to oxford i was going to study english i was going to be an english professor and i took a year between treveca and that to do some exploring and um however when i ended up in in los angeles ended up living with the um, men in recovery um, on fifth and wall downtown skid row mm. and um, was transformed by my experience of the gospel coming alive in their lives. Um, mm. I'd never experienced the gospel like this. It, I'd grown up in a, a fairly, um, you know, respectable group of lower middle class um, parishioners. Um, we were pretty good. We had our faults, but there were some people who were doing all the things that I'd been warned about um, that had come from lives of prostituting, pimping, dealing drugs, um, coming out of prison, lives, lives that I hadn't encountered um, outside of the Los Angeles mission. And, um, and the power of the gospel to save addicted and oppressed people um, just totally captured my heart. And I didn't mm. know what to do except to say, I'm not going to be a, an English professor with a tweed jacket. Um, <laughs> I'm going to be giving my life over to the poor so that I can continue to experience God's kingdom where Jesus is, where the resurrected Christ is moving to liberate people who are most oppressed in our world. Um, and that kind of dovetailed with the theological teaching I'd picked up at Trevecca, which um, because of people like Tim Green and other amazing professors here, I just picked up a major, a religion major. Because I was oh, a Christian, wow. I wanted to be a a good one. And I thought mm. that was a way to go forward. Mm. Um, and it was incredibly formative along with my literary formation, which I think is equally important. Um, and so the call came kind of through the resin. So 
if that formation of growing up in the Nazarene church of being formed theologically and literarily at Trevecca University was kind of a, a pan flute, then my experience at Los, the Los Angeles mission was like a wind moving through that flute and just playing the music of the gospel. Mm. Um, and it wasn't that nothing was there before, but it just resonated in a way that I knew it was bringing my whole life together. Mm. And so while I was there, the shape of that call sort of became clear. And it's, although it's taken a lot of twists and turns, it has also a certain logic to it. Um, and I, I could talk about that at some point, or we could move to a different question. No, yeah, tell me about that. How did you get from that sense of the gospel to where you are now? What's the, what's the timeline there? Yeah, that was, that was in 1999 when we set out. And um, there was a pastor at the Los Angeles Mission named Cedric Henson, who at the end of my time that fall and early winter said, come back, I want to train you. Mm. And he was a man that, uh, like nobody I'd ever met, he was a charismatic African-American pastor, about 55 years old. Um, I'd grown up in a very segregated um, community, church, um, all my life, and did not think of myself as uh, racist, but I'd been raised in a very racist context, and I know very little about African-American experience. Mm. And Cedric would shape me, would give me books, uh, books by Cornell West, uh, mm. would would take me to to parts of town that he loved, to jazz clubs he loved, and he introduced me to what would become a lifetime of exploration and understanding reconciliation and what the African-American experience is in America. Mm. He also had a prophetic gift uh, as, a charis- he, as a charismatic pastor. There were different charisms that, he, that were very different from my upbringing that he would exhibit. But I would say, and everybody that knew him could, could say that he was able to see people in ways that were that were penetrating and that were uh, prophetic. And so Cedric really formed me in a lot of ways, um, became my mentor and, and great friend and um, brought me and navigated me into the experience of, of what it's like to be on the underside of history uh, as many of the people we were ministering to were. I looked around and I said, um, well, you know, this is great, but could we do it on a farm? Because it seems kind of ridiculous to try to invite people out of recovery for drug, drug and alcohol addiction when they're on Skid Row, like the best place to score crack in America. Um, mm. And it's it's Axl Rose's The Jungle, you know, that literally is where we were. So, so yeah, I, that began to become a dream. And there was a uh, a man recovering from crack addiction there. He was a Jewish carpenter named David, um, true story. And he, um, <laughs> he, he, he said, yeah, this is a really good dream. Actually, I used to be a farmer in Northern California and um, I know how you could do this. Mm. And he began telling me about organic farming and the, the culture of it and the economics of it. It wasn't something I'd expected to do. I gardened a lot um, for elderly people uh, for hire in mm. high school, but this wasn't like, something I grew up doing. Um, my family didn't have a garden. We, we weren't farmers. We were in farmland, but we weren't farmers. 
Um, so that dream began to sort of unfold. I have a good friend, um, Brent and Marcia McMillan, who um, Brent is a professor here in the, in the theology department. And we began dreaming about what it would be like to have a community on a farm that cared for people in recovery from drug and alcohol addiction. Mm. And so when I returned, um, I, I, I wrote my um, granting body and I said, hey, I, I'd like to um, I'd like to not study literature and reapply for a religion degree. And I want to study communities in Europe that are caring um, for the poor and uh, living together in community. Uh, the pastor I was with out there at a, at a, um, at a cathedral there uh, close to the Los Angeles mission, um, she told me about the Teze community and other intentional communities in Europe that were living together in rhythms uh, similar to um, the old monastic life, but with a radical openness to the world mm. and with the inclusion of single people and couples mm. and uh, with different kinds of missions. And I was like, well, where is this place? I want to meet these people. This sounds like Acts chapter two. Mm. Um, I'd looked around for churches that could welcome um, the people coming out of the Los Angeles mission. Um, but I couldn't find churches that were more than a Sunday, Wednesday meeting. And really the, the scripture about demons leaving the house of the possessed man in, in the gospel of Luke, who went out seeking rest, couldn't find any, and then went back and found the house they had left. And they, they took seven demons more, more wicked than themselves and moved in. And the final condition of the man was worse than the first. We saw that happen at the Los Angeles mission where men would get an incredible experience of the gospel would come clean in the community they were in. And then they would leave the community into an isolated place mm. and find themselves back in the same cycle again, because they didn't have friends. They didn't have the discipleship they needed, the dailiness that we see in the early church. Yeah. And so how, you know, how could we refurnish a house that had been emptied of what had been poisoning it with, the kind of gospel life that we see occurring um, in Luke uh, in Luke and Acts where, where there's a dailiness of life where people are studying the apostles teaching and breaking bread and sharing what they have and meeting and um, daily. And so that was my, that was my search. And that was, that's what sent me scampering off to Europe, looking for communities that embodied that kind of life that could be the full breadth of discipleship that we see. And, and I realized in, in the midst of it that I needed that, like this wasn't mm. something someone else needed. Um, I was the same kind of um, addicted person that, you know, people, so, some people's manageable addictions um, manifested in life altering, incarcerating types of consequences. And mine were quiet um, and mine were manageable. And mm. I saw in their honesty, people who, in 12-step programs, um, the capacity to say, yeah, this holiness boy actually isn't so holy. Like I've got all sorts of um, sins that have me in their grip and, and mm. the kind of honesty and encounter with the gospel that I saw coming out of the men in recovery was so powerful. I said, the church really needs this. I came thinking, you know, maybe the church has something to offer to these people in homelessness and addiction. And I left and certain that they had what the church needed mm. and had been missing. Um, and so that, that led to um, sort of the beginning of the manifestation of 
what would become my vocation. That's that's so cool. I'm looking forward to you keeping talking about that. But tell me about where you go from there. So I, I found this. So I rode around to a bunch of universities in Europe, mostly England, because I, I don't speak um, anything but a little French. Sure. And I couldn't study in it. So um, I rode around and said, hey, I'm really interested in uh, intentional communities, um, new mm -hmm. communities. Um, are you somewhere I could study? And I got a email back from a professor in uh, the University of Newcastle upon Tyne. And he said, yeah, that's me. I'm, I know lots of these communities to come study with me. Ooh. So I reapplied and got accepted there. Mm. And I went off to Northern England and began to study intentional communities. And the short of it, it was a really transformative experience in a lot of ways. Um, the, the, the short part of the story is um, we visit, I, through his connections, I visited the uh, Northumbria community, which wrote the Celtic daily prayer. Mm -hmm. And they have really revived a lot of the new um, the, the interest in Celtic Christianity. Um, I visited Iona and the community there where um, I think John Philip Newell was writing and working at the time. I, I didn't, uh, I heard of him years later writing great books and realized that he was, he was writing um, he, from that place and that place of spirituality. Um, I wrote my dissertation on the Teze community after staying with them for a little bit and talking to the brothers and getting to meet brother Roger and um, interrogating them. And my, my hope was to um, meet these communities and ask them what goes right and what goes wrong and, and how can we begin living this life um, mm. back in my context. Yeah. Um, and so um, while I was there, I, I became very close to a, a community I hadn't expected to find called the Shimon um community. And they're a French uh, ecumenical, they're a Catholic community with an ecumenical vocation. Mm. And so they have their, you know, their official church order, like a Benedictine or a, or a Franciscan. Um, mm. But they also have full membership uh, with, there are full members who are Anabaptists, Protestants, Eastern Orthodox, every branch of Christianity. And they've inherited these amazing uh, monasteries and castles that the uh, the church, the Catholic church has grown too um, old and too um, few to care for. And so they just mm. gave them to these communities where they live. And they, wow. they have retreats, marriage retreats, student hostels, um, interior healing and counseling. They do a lot of different ministries. Um, and we became very close to them and just fell in love with their life. Um, we returned. I started a farm in Nashville for uh, men recovering from addiction. Um, and it was a part of a ministry called Teen Challenge. They wanted to do a, a farm ministry and they hadn't, they hadn't known of my hopes. And so my family and I lived out there with them and I taught discipleship classes and recovery classes and we farmed together. Mm. And that was the beginning of my farming. And um, it was a really powerful tool for healing um, and that's what I'd hoped is that that context, <clears throat> the piece of that context and the, the um, generative act of growing things and being in touch with the earth was one of the wounds that needed to be reconciled in order for the healing of the whole person. And mm. we had a 
really powerful experience out there. Um, that ministry left that <clears throat> location and I stayed and started working with the boys farm that was housed on the same, the, the ministry was housed on the same um, location. And so I started teaching boys how to grow food mm. and uh, they were from the inner city. They had never seen or done anything like this. It was a, a real interesting challenge. I learned a lot about working with young people, mm. but um, eventually I kind of grew tired of, of growing food to sell to kind of upper middle-class, upper-class people. We were growing great food and then sending and then selling it to wealthier people and then sending boys back to contexts where um, they couldn't get the kind of food that we told them they should be eating. Of course, oh. we shared the food with them, but they had no grocery stores in their neighborhood. They were living in what I would come to understand was food deserts. Mm. And then I, I became inspired um, both by Wendell Berry and by people like Will Allen in Milwaukee. Um, Wendell Berry taught me that farming's actually connected to all the problems that I've, that I've cared about mm. and that the world is in trouble um, ecologically. And a lot of that trouble is connected to the way we've chosen to farm. Um, well, Alan taught me that you can start a farm in the city and begin to um, address a lot of problems that, um, that don't necessarily seem connected to farming. Mm. Um, so not only can you get food into places that don't have it, you can create jobs, you can create beauty, um, you can create meaningful work and community. Yeah. And that model really inspired me. And so I began looking and exploring in the city for what would be kind of a next phase. Mm. But in the time I was out on the farm in Davidson County here, in the greater Nashville uh, metro area, um, I really began to see that my vocation was shifting from just ministry to people with in recovery and coming out of homelessness to land care that the greatest challenge of our generation was going to be to save our beleaguered earth. Yeah. And um, I didn't mean to, I certainly didn't come by that. Honestly, I wasn't raised to think that that was an important part of discipleship, but it would become um, what I understood to be not only my, but our generations and our, our world's um, greatest challenge. Um, mm -hmm. And that would plunge me into that challenge. It was Wendell Berry teaching me about those connections and actually what was materially going on to our soil, to our, to our farm communities and the land that, that supports us all. Mm. Gosh, I love that so much. Um, tell me about the project you're working on now. What is it that you are doing out there? Yes. So, Inspired by Will Allen, I started poking around in, in the neighborhood behind um, Trevecca University. I mm -hmm. attended um, until um, a couple years ago, I attended Trevecca Community Church of the Nazarene, mm -hmm. the campus church. And so I, I'd attended college here. I went to church here and I had nothing to do with the health of the neighborhood mm -hmm. um, and having like walked or biked to church in Europe and been very impressed both for experientially and theologically by the idea of a parish church mm. uh, where a church was a community church that actually was composed of and, and reflected and ministered to the community in which it was embedded. Yeah. I began to pray, Lord, would you either 
find a church where I am or move me to the church where I'm attending because I'm no longer like satisfied with the problems of drive-in church, church attendance and ministry. Um, having lived at the Los Angeles mission rather than commuted uh, was a radically different experience. I'd spent quite a few summers um, working at the Los Angeles mission, doing various things with my aunt and uncle. Uh, but then I lived there for, um, for about seven months and it was, it was an incredible experience. I mean, we were all there um, in this sort of haphazard monastery mm. where we had dedicated ourselves temporarily to the monastic vows of poverty, chastity, and obedience. Mm. And we were praying multiple times a day together, working together, cooking, eating together. So wait, this sounds like a monastery. Um, and the experience of community and growth in all of us was, was pretty amazing. That's one thing that sent me off to look for how we could get some more of that, um, in my life and in the church. Um, and so, um, I was dissatisfied with the way we were trying to build community across a large city. Mm. Um, the way my friends who attended this church wanted to get closer, wanted to do more, wanted to experience more of the life of God. Um, more formation, more ministry, but we had to drive a long way to do it. And I was also becoming acutely aware that driving is like one of the big problems in the world that needs to stop. Like we, yeah. it's enough cars for now, right? It's enough commuting for now. Mm. Let's, let's, uh, let's move to where we live and work and play and worship and be where we are mm. and spend less time in the car and less time um, throwing carbon back up in the atmosphere. Yeah. So I attended a, um, a neighborhood meeting and uh, they said, who are you and what are you doing here? And I said, well, I'm a farmer and uh, I'm really have become interested in urban farming. And they said, oh, well, we've been wanting to do that for years, but we don't have anybody to help us. Can you come? When can you move in? <laughs> and so that was what um, I hadn't mentioned, but Stephanie and I had prayed, Lord, if you want us to move into this neighborhood, um, which has its challenges and isn't anything like I'd lived growing up. It wasn't a suburb. We mm. live in the, um, one of the highest poverty indexes in the state. Um, and um, it has a poverty index of 90, um, wow. which is, um, they recommend you should move out immediately. Like this is bad for your health and the poverty index, like you should not even be there. Mm. Uh, that was where, I would, you know, um, a suburban kid was moving into with his young family. And so it took some soul searching and it took some a prayer and um, we talked to Dr. Boone and he said, it wouldn't be wrong for you to ask five families to move in, ask God for five families to move in with you. And we also had asked God if we got an invitation, um, that was going to be a, a necessary step. We didn't want to just move in and say, Hey, y'all need a farm. Right. Um, <laughs> um, so with that invitation and with a lot that came afterward and with five families that decided to move in with us wow. in a, um, in a cooperative um, community kind of setting, we decided mm. to go for it. Uh, something, somewhat, something like what you're experimenting with now, Brett. Yeah. Um, so we um, we had rhythms of prayer, and mm. uh, we had lots of meals. Um, I know in the Catholic worker they said uh, like prayer is important, but like dinner's necessary. So we we definitely <laughs> like emphasized food. Uh, we prayed too. We, we did sure. our, we did our praying. Um, 
and we we built gardens with our neighbors and in our homes and in the in the lots that we could get a hold of. And about that time, the Center for Social Justice was beginning here at Trebekah, and um, I was asked, hey, do you want to teach? Uh, we don't really know what to do with the environmental justice program. Um, we know we need it, but we'd like you to shape it. We'd be interested. And I was like, yes, definitely. This is what I was made for. Uh, so mm. or, so I, I began teaching there. Um, we were living here. I was teaching at the university, which is, um, I'm, I can see the university from my home. Um, oh, wow. And we, um, we began gardening with neighbors and uh, then growing with students. And um, so I gave a talk about creation care and urban farming and the vice president, David Caldwell, came up afterward in 2010 and said, what can we do to get one of those urban farms here at Trevecca? I said, well, you need to hire me full time. And he did. <laughs> And so, so that's how we started the farm. That's and we've awesome. been working since March of 2011 to build a food oasis mm -hmm. in the middle of the food desert. Um, we've been seeing what kind of robust um, urban farming projects we could get away with in the middle of the city. And uh, what we've got away with so far is we have uh, chickens, uh, pigs. We've got 60 chickens. We've got five pigs. Um, we've got, we have... Um, four beehives wow. and we have a guardian dog named Wendell. Mm. Um, we have um, fish, tilapia in an aquaponic system. We have a greenhouse. We cultivate about um, a little under an acre of vegetables mm. and we have about 130 fruit and nut trees on campus. Um, so we've got a pretty significant urban orchard. And then we, we've started um, school gardens and We've started community gardens, two community gardens, and we're now working on a project with the neighborhood to create a food security um, plan. So basically a plan to make our neighborhood food secure with a lot of our neighbors um, and stakeholders. And then we're writing grants to get that plan done. And so working with schools and churches and, and neighbors too. Um, make sure that the healthy food is in this neighborhood because presently it's not yeah. and it's causing radically different health, health outcomes than people from different parts of the city mm -hmm. who can access food. Um, so uh, we have within that, um, it's kind of driven by um, our environmental justice students who are studying how to save the earth while eating the best tomatoes and mm -hmm. um, learning to build food systems that work for everybody. So the environmental, the, the environmental studies that they're doing have a, a theological foundation mm. and a agricultural flavoring. Like, so it's, it's less focused on, um, and we talk a lot about all the ways in which we need to work mm. to um, save our precious planet. But we're really focusing on the way that the two billion farmers out there can be deployed and, and empowered to do their work um, and do it well because farmers are the primary care physicians of the planet. Mm -hmm. And if they're given the resources to do so, they will care for the land in a way that actually creates diversity, sequesters carbon, cleans our air, cleans our water, keeps mm -hmm. the resources needed for all God's creatures to thrive and live. And if they do their work, 
then and are allowed to and are forced into ways of farming that actually do the opposite that right. release carbon that pollute water that lose topsoil that mm -hmm. d diminishes biodiversity which presently they are under the thrall of the industrial food system and industrial agricultural system mm. um, if we allow those those primary care physicians to do their work the planet will heal um, and so we want to tell that everywhere. We want to tell that to missionaries and pastors um, here and ab abroad and here um, that like this is the kind of work we need to do. We got a lot of work to do. And we have to do it all at once. But farmers should be a, the focus of our work in uh, caring for creation. That's fantastic. I love the whole thing. Um, Tell me about your visions for the future of the Trevecca Urban Farm project that you're working on. What are what is the what are your kind of hopes for building it up or doing the next thing? What's on your radar? Yeah, I, I kind of heard it takes like seven years to establish a farm, and I believe it. Like we're about mm -hmm. at that point, and I'm starting to see things settle down. Um, at first, it's just like the first six days of creation and it's just all like moiling crazy every you know things getting out of the fences and then the 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 work of separating and dividing and mm. like planting and bringing forth fertility that begin you start seeing that happen and you get yeah. to the end of seven years like oh this is good this is very good it's starting <laughs> to really hum and start to really work together and so, I mean, the, the really interesting thing I think about being a farmer is you get to kind of um, steward an ecosystem. Mm -hmm. You get to look around you, see what your larger ecosystem would be doing and try to imitate that on a micro scale. Mm -hmm. um, so your farm becomes an analog of um, what your bioregion, what your, what your little climate and um, local ecosystem would be trying to do. Um, and so that's a really challenging and interesting thing. I think we're kind of at a good point. It's why we've begun to reach out even deeper into the community and mm. do some more systemic work, yeah. like with a food security plan. That's kind of next. We've written a grant to do a food uh, a community food project is a lot bigger than we've done before. Mm. And we're talking about, um, moving from gardens and trees to building an urban farm in the middle of a food desert mm. um, that's run by and um, owned by the community. That's great. And so um, we would love, we're pretty close to some of the best restaurants in Tennessee and we would love to be supplying those restaurants and creating jobs and local food. Mm. Um, and so we we're, we're really, the first thing is to create a proof of concept. Uh, can it be done in the city? Yeah. And we bring people here over a thousand a year and say, look, this is what you can do. You can have a farm in the middle of the city. Right. Um, not everybody can have pigs. We're, we're a university. We get away with extra stuff, but everybody can do a lot of what we do. Yeah. And we don't, we like one of our ethics is we don't do anything that the poor can't do. Um, if our methods um, or our equipment um, are inaccessible to people of of typical or or um, resource constrained environments, we don't do it. Mm. Um, all of our methods are based on collecting free stuff that people waste and turning that into assets. We get 
um, our farms, um, we've captured over a million and a half, one and a half million pounds of food waste and turned it into compost, animal wow. food, animal protein. Mm. Um, we do that regularly. Um, every day we're, we're, we're dealing with catching waste streams and turning into assets. Mm. We take wood chips that the arborists throw away, mix it with those food wastes, or mix it with the manures our animals make and make amazing compost. Uh, mm. That's free. That just takes labor. It just takes like knowledge. And yeah. um, so we can look at a garden and say, this garden took cost 10 cents. Mm. You can get hundreds of pounds. You can get hundreds of dollars worth of vegetables out of it in a year. Wow. Um, and those are the kind of methods that we want to champion. We don't want people coming to our farm and saying, oh, well, I'd love to do that, but I don't have a tractor. We don't have a tractor. Well, I don't have a tiller. We don't have a tiller either. That's not how we farm. We farm, um, we grow food totally differently and mm -hmm. um, it's something anybody can do. So that's, that's our model. Um, mm -hmm. And we can go to, to Africa or the Philippines and we can go down the street and talk to people and, and it's a conversation that, um, is enriching because we're not, we're not doing the kind of agriculture that drove American farmers out of business. Yeah. that sent them into a debt spiral that they're still rattling their way out of. Mm. Um, and as a result of that kind of high capital farming, we have fewer people on our farms today in America than we have in our prisons. Mm. And so that's not the, that's the model also that we've been ex exporting across the world to the ruin of many poor yeah. uh, peasant farmers. And um, we want to get the word out there through missionaries and through people working in the field, like don't do what we did because it ruined our farm system it ruined our land it, it we lost we lost half our topsoil in the last hundred years mm. and we don't have any farmers like yeah. there's less than half a percent of our population is farming anymore if mm. you do this like we're the ghost of christmas future like don't because it's going to happen it's going to go right. down the same way like continue to preserve your indigenous wisdom farming wisdom your land wisdom while adopting things that you in, technologies that you would first interrogate like can we afford this is this appropriate can we fix this equipment um with the what with the tell like the knowledge that we have and the, the materials we have yeah. uh, if the answer is no we don't use it instead of mm. just shoving down the throat of the majority world the kind of technologies that have ruined western farming um, yeah. so we really want to get that gospel out of there like don't lose what could save the world because the kind of farming that we need is out there but mm. it's being despised culturally and choked economically mm. and we need to reinvest in that and, and say this farming is 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 god's way of farming like it's it's it is the way we've been given to nurture the land and so we will also want to go to places um respond i mean it's not not as fun to fly as it used to be now that i know what it costs the world but we do like to bring stories back from different places and saying this is what we need to do and elaborate the kind of good work that's been out there. Mm. Well, and I so appreciate your vision and the work that you're doing. I think it's really, really cool. Um, tell me what other projects you're working on. I hear that you are coordinating a gathering of some sort. Yeah. Um, let me mention one more project we're doing on the farm and then mention the Creation Care Summit. Go for it. We, uh, one fun thing that we're doing is um, we, I was talking with my kids and I was like, okay, we're reading the climate reports. We're like, what does the world need now? We look around our neighborhood and our world and world needs trees and the world needs bikes. Mm. 
and our neighborhood needs jobs. And so we said, well, what if we did all that at once? Um, and so we came up with this program called Tree Cycle, and we basically hire neighborhood youth to plant a food forest in their neighborhood using bicycle powered mobility. Mm. And so we've got bikes that we gotten donated and fixed up. We've got little trailers that we've either built or, or like kitty trailers that we all <laughs> uh, use. And we load trees and shovels and we, we bike around and we plant fruit trees That's awesome. or nut trees or mm. pollinator trees for bees. And um, so we're trying to create a public orchard that people can just come forage from mm. um, your like season round. Like we're trying to get all the different types of fruit that fruit at different times. And this year we planted uh, right around 200 trees in wow. our neighborhood. And we've, uh, we spent, I guess we've put um, over $10,000 into our neighborhood um, pockets mm. for uh, kids that have been planting these trees. So we got a Metro Health grant to do it, but we're also hoping to like begin working with these developers that are gentrifying our neighborhoods and say, hey, you need to buy trees from us and right. um, other ways that we can try to try to keep this money circulating into the pockets of people that that can really use it and create mm. youth jobs in the process so that's fun we're doing it we're doing that and uh that's one of the more joyful things that we've gotten involved in that's super cool so we have a uh, creation care summit coming up in flint michigan and um that was born out of um a meeting that um brett you and um Caleb and uh, some other good friends uh, decided we would convene at M19 mm. and we were um, we, we just got in a room at the messenger cafe and started talking and the room was packed out we were mm. literally like carpeting the floor with people and we just <laughs> spread the word through a, um, a workshop I gave and kind of before the summit or excuse before M19 we just spread the word as we could. Hey, we're going to get together Nazarenes that care about creation care. We're just gonna, um, we're going to get together and talk about what needs to be done. And, um, it emerged from that, that one of the things that needed to be done was we needed to have, we need to get together. We needed to, um, have a summit. Um, so we, it just kind of emerged out of the group that we needed to do that and write a resolution for the Nazarene church, um, to adopt that would express, um, the church's recognition, um, of the care for cre- creation, being a part of our discipleship, being an mm. important part of our vocation as humans, as people yeah. kind of inspired by, um, some things like what the Pope, what Pope Francis wrote in his encyclical Laudate Si, which mm. has really, uh, given energy to those already at work in the Catholic Church um, and given attention to those who weren't thinking about it in the Catholic Church. Um, yeah. He said, this is important. We have to pay attention to this. Mm-hmm. And what you see in that document, Laudate Si, is over and over, almost every page, he's talking about the poor. Mm-hmm. He's talking about how the destruction of our world is driving our poor into the face of death and um, how it hurts the poor most. They have the least mobility to escape the consequences of our destruction of the planet and how the care of the land is fundamental to caring for the poor, that we can't love our neighbor if we're not loving the land that we've been given to steward that Mm -hmm. supports our neighbor, not only human neighbors, but others that we've been 
given to care and care and guard. So inspired by that, we, um, we talked about um, writing um, a resolution um, and we talked about getting together in the fall. And so we're going to do that. We're, we're, um, we've got a, a really great group of people meeting. Um, I'm sorry about my beeps. I don't know how to sound. This. Um, in October in Flint, Michigan, um, it's going to begin the 20th and go through the 22nd of October. Um, it'll start on a Sunday night and or Sunday evening and then, then go through, through Tuesday. And so, um, we're, we're both wanting to bring presenters there to talk about what's going on in the world, what's going on with the environmental justice, uh, injustices in Flint, but also around our country and around our world. And how's that wow. affecting our neighbors? Um, and what can we do about it? What should we do about it? So mm. there'll be some workshops about kind of what's going on, but also some, some times when we are getting around tables um, with, with issues within the issue um, where we can say, this is what we believe young people can do, uh, teenagers can do about, um, about what's happening to, the, to our world, about the destruction of our world, about the care of our only planet. Or this is what we believe colleges can do about it, or college students, or districts, or local churches. We'll have different tables where we'll be brainstorming and planning and saying, these are some recommendations that we could get to different bodies of people within our larger body about how missions could respond, um, compassion ministries could respond, and think about um, think about creation care theologically, yeah. and think about it pastorally, um, educationally, um, and, and uh, missionally. Mm. And so um, we're hoping that in these sessions that all the voices that gather there can begin to shape, um, begin to shape how the Nazarene church continues to care for the poor with a more expanded vision of our, our vocation to um, love um, the, the oppressed. Mm. Are the, is the gathering kind of open to the public or who would you recommend come? We have focused on Nazarenes, but anybody can come. Um, we really want to know and inform how the Nazarene church can begin responding as a body, mm -hmm. how we can begin forming our, in our local churches and in our institutions, um, our educational institutions, how we can be forming a people capable of responding to the unique challenges that are, we're mm -hmm. facing right now. Um, we're happy to have anybody there and, and we will have non-Nazarenes there, but this is the Naz it's a Nazarene gathering, yeah. um, so it, it focuses on what we can do as a church um, to join the many churches and, and many others who are already deep into, deeply committed and deeply involved in the uh, fight to um, steward the world that mm -hmm. God's given us to love. Um, where do you see... God already at work on these issues in the Church of the Nazarene. What kinds of projects besides what you're doing there in Nashville are, are giving you hope? You know, there is a lot going on. And um, I think about Frank Mills in Ghana, mm -hmm. who I met when I was in Africa. And he is um, he's doing agricultural projects that help young women 
uh, young women are often married off at a very, very young age, um, 12, 13 years old in this culture. And, and they're, they're often taken out of school because they don't have, um, because of the sexism involved um, yeah. in, in the culture that he's working, the context he's working in, and the value that's placed on young women versus men. Mm. Also, they're taken out to work. And um, he has been giving uh, hogs to young women to raise and sell so that they'll have the means to go to school and mm. the um, sort of be able to have the economic impact on their household to justify allowing them to stay in school. Yeah. Um, we, we met pastors from different parts of Africa who were starting fish farms, who are, who are um, teaching agriculture. Um, and so uh, those examples really inspire me. Mm. We had uh, uh, the Joseph Project in Senegal, which was a farm started um, by the Nazarene Church. Um, and um, so we, we went as a, a team of students from Treveca and Treveca Community Church to help them plan and uh, build some structures there um, um, with uh, the EBs who were at that point stationed over there. Mm. And um, so we, you know, we redesigned a shade house that had been sent over there uh, from the West and created uh, some irrigation and irrigation lines. Um, so, uh, drilled a well. We did these kinds of things. Um, and, and everywhere I go, people are starting to talk about um, these amazing agricultural product, pro projects that are happening. In Swaziland, there's a really incredible project um, that the Church of the Nazarene is doing uh, with the assistance of, of some grants they receive to dig wells and put up fences to create gardens for um, AIDS victims. Mm. And so AIDS survivors, they, the Church of the Nazarene has literally been bringing people back from the dead um, in how, homes and huts across Swaziland, which has the largest uh, percentage of AIDS uh, victims in the world. Wow. And they've been nursing them back to health, giving them the ARVs that extend their life. And they also need the kinds of nutrition and food that help those medicines <coughs> work. Mm. <coughs> Excuse me. And so they started gardens and they were gardens for people and families who are uh, surviving AIDS. Wow. And so um, we went over and visited uh, uh, Mary um, and her many gardens that she'd helped started. And um, it's absolutely amazing. Mm -hmm. And um, it is a lifeline for people. Um, there's a pastor, a Nazarene pastor in um Manila that I met and he um, he has a little garden and supports his whole ministry on some plants that he sells and he grows them in a little patio garden probably the size of, of, of a living room and makes $500 a month and that's what mm -hmm. supports his ministry and a lot of the pastors around the country or around the, his country and around the world are supporting themselves through farming. And so knowing how to do that with excellence and profitably is really like critical to continuing to support the ministers or allowing them to continue to support themselves in the ministry that they do. Mm. And one last 
example, um, Pastor Gono is uh, is on Mount Ita in uh, Luzon in the Philippines, and he has moved up there with his family. And they're this they met this family down in the city below the mountain, and they were uh, excuse me the tribe that that lives there, um, and that tribe goes down for two months a year to beg in the city because they didn't have any crops during that time to feed themselves. Mm-hmm. There was some hunger seasons. Um, this pastor moved among the people, learned the language in a month, a totally different language. This guy's brilliant. And then started finding vegetables and cash crops that would be bearing during the times when they usually had a dearth. And oh, so wow. now they don't go down to beg anymore because they're eating year round on the food that mm-hmm. they grow. Uh, they're they're also growing and selling um, shade grown coffee, um, and they're doing it in a kind of permaculture system that's healing the earth and feeding the people. And those are the kinds of things that we just believe are good news for the poor. Like those are gospel yeah. stories, mm-hmm. and we haven't always recognized them as such. But I believe I believe we can see it. Like we're we're very fitted as as the people of God in the holiness tradition to see like this is God's liberating work. Mm-hmm. And it's exciting work, and we—it's um, not only um, important for the poor, but when we get back in touch with the earth in these ways, we get back in touch with our creative vocation and who we are. We get back in touch with the communion of creation that we've been embedded in, that we live from, and that we've been created to enjoy forever. Mm-hmm. And so, it's not only a deeply important work; it's a deeply satisfying work that I think brings us into the fullness of our humanity. Gosh, that's great. If there's kind of one thing that you would want people, Church of the Nazarene people or clergy, young clergy to know about all of this, what would you want to say? Hmm. What would you want them to hear? You know, it's, it's easy at this point to kind of say, um, you know, people should start recycling mm. or planting a garden. I do think if you're going to go out and do something, it may as well be plant a garden. I mean, I don't think anything does so many things at once as that. Mm. But I really think our first act is to recognize that we are embedded in a system that is killing the world mm. um, and have a moment like the crowd in Jerusalem who hears what they've done, they've been doing like in ignorance and just say, cry out to Peter, like, what shall we do? Mm. Like that place of realizing like, wow, we did not know what we were doing. We did Mm. not know that we were killing the son of God. Like, what do we do now? Mm. And to, to find ourselves in that place is the beginning of whatever is next. Um, So I really think it's a matter of us coming to an awakening that something that we have been taught not to see, that we've been discouraged from asking questions about the origins of everything that composes our life from the clothes on our back to the food in our bellies and the energy that illuminates this computer or the metals that were put together. um, All those stories follow back to the enslavement of humans and other creatures and their destruction. Um, and the question is like, what should we do? We don't know. Like, how do we totally change our lives so that we are not 
embedded in a system that demands the destruction of God's creation mm. and that enslaves the humans that we want to call our neighbors and that we yeah. want to love. And so it's a big deal. Like I would say that's a, uh, I, I don't want to give five easy things to do to save the planet. There's nine easy things. Like what the action required of us is an awakening first. Mm -hmm. And so I think what I would say is, you know, we are headed uh, for a very rocky landing. It's, it's like we're in a plane and we've had the We've had the windows down. We've been kind of watching the movie and mm. eating the snacks. But I think the first thing we need to do is lift these windows and look out and see. Because as a body of people, um, we're headed for a very dangerous place. Mm. And the hope is that we can land this plane, that, that there's as little damage as possible. Um, but the first thing I think is that we wake up that we begin to look and we begin to ask of God, like, what shall we do? And I think that's going to be the beginning of an awakening to a, a third part of our vocation as Nazarenes. Uh, we talked about our relationship with God and our neighbor. Mm. Um, what about the rest of creation? Because when we read the creation story, that is everywhere in terms of our, our first vocation and the way we're made and what we're made for is to also care for God's creation and awakening to that whole like other relationship is what I'm hopeful for, for our church. That's great. Thank you so much for sharing that. Um, if someone is inspired by something you've said, or they have questions for you, they want to get in touch with you. Um, where can they reach you? How can they find you? Yeah. That's usually what people around me in my life ask as well. Um, <laughs> so, um, including you, Britt. Um, so yeah, I'm, I'm reachable by email. I, I usually eventually answer all my emails. Um, mm. I, you know, we have a, a Facebook page. It's, it feels so banal to say Facebook after talking about all this, but I'm reachable, um, through that as well. We, Trevecca Urban Farm has a Facebook page. If you want to mm. kind of dig around and see what we've been up to and get some visuals or videos about what this looks like. Um, come see me at the Creation Care Summit. Um, I'd love to talk to you there um, and reason, dream with you. Um, I think that's creationcaresummit.eventbrite.com. Oh, how about that? Thanks. There you go. <laughs> I'm really hoping for a great conversation there. Mm. Um, so, yes, I can be reached by email, um, which perhaps you can leave in, in notes on sure. your podcast. That's great. And come visit. We have lots of visitors and we'd love to you to lay eyes on what we're doing here in Nashville if you happen to be in the neighborhood. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I've taken that tour myself and it was pretty amazing. Well, thank you so much for taking time out of your busy schedule to be with us. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Rick. Thank you for your work.